This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Heinz Weiss about his book, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation, published in 2020 by Rutledge. Dr. Weiss, and it is, we pronounce it with a V, right? Weiss? Dr. Weiss? Yes. Exactly. Um, was born in, in um, Würzburg, Wurz, Germany, where he later studied medicine and philosophy at the university. He went on to train as a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst, in addition to studying clinical neurology. And Dr. Weiss is the head of the Department of Psychosomatic Medicine at the Robert Bosch Hospital, Stuttgart, a post he has held for over 20 years. He teaches at the University of Tübingen, and is a director of the Sigmund Freud Institute Frankfurt. In the 1990s, he was a visiting scientist in the adult department of the Tavistock Clinic London. And he has also taught in Italy, France, the USA, South America, Central America. Since 2012, he has chaired the education section of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. So, and one reason I um, am interviewing Dr. Weiss today about his book, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation, is because he's going to be coming to Los Angeles. Well, coming virtually, I guess is right. It's by Zoom, right? Um, At the invitation of two institutes here in Los Angeles, we have uh, an institute I belong to, the Psychoanalytic Center of California, and then another institute, the the new Center of Psychoanalysis, which is um, basically hosting it. And so for, for listeners who are interested after this podcast, if you'd like to learn more, um, you can contact me or the new Center for Psychoanalysis in Los Angeles to learn how to, I guess, I think it's open to the public to participate in this, this seminar on Saturday, November 6th, uh, where we'll really be going into depth in uh, some of the ideas we'll be talking about today with Dr. Weiss. So, good morning, Dr. Weiss. Good morning, Felix. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for taking your time. I know you, you're really busy doing a lots of teaching and seminars nowadays. 
And so we always start off, and let me show people the book here, uh, Trauma, Guilt, and Reparation. It's a hardback book, uh, unlike so many we get nowadays. And uh, we always begin with just saying, why did you write this book? What was the reason for, for it? Yes. I think the intention to, to write this book resulted from my psychiatric work with uh, borderline patients, mainly, essentially, and also from my research in pathological organizations of the personality. And I found that many of these patients suffer from early traumatization, and I was impressed clinically how they construct highly complex intrapsychic organizations, which first seem to offer some sort of protection in the beginning, but later on become prisons, which are very difficult to escape. In the analytic situation, these uh, organizations create dead ends and long periods of withdrawal, which seem to obstruct psychic development and change. And for me, John Steiner's theory of psychic retreats in particular was helpful to understand these highly complex states of mind. And then I began to explore in more detail the specific characteristics of those impasse situations. And in also the way the analyst gets off often uh, drawn into it. And another important observation was that many of these patients suffered from tormenting feelings of guilt. And I asked myself where the feelings of guilt came from and why those patients turned to self-hatred and punishment and often seemed unable to deal with guilt. I found that the inner figures that dominated their minds were damaged and damaging that there was a specific difficulty for them to repair them. Therefore, I decided to examine the relationship between trauma, guilt, and reparation. And we're going we're gonna to look at each one of those words, I think, because uh, they're the title of your book, and I think they're a real good way to, to get into your approach. But let's start with your approach, which so I've obviously heard, I already heard John Steiner, Pathological Organizations, uh, psychic retreats. So we know these are terms from uh, what we might call a sort of a British world of psychoanalysis. And, and you being German, can you tell us more about uh, about your approach and how you, you came to it? Yes. Um, um, I, when I, I was trained in Germany and when I was trained as a psychoanalyst, there was very little Kleinian analysis in Germany. Uh, it was only in the late 80s and 90s that a growing interest began to develop in Kleinian theory. But still today, this uh, is different from Kleinian clinical practice. And I think Kleinian analysis is mainly about how we talk to the patient and how we take up the patient's communications. And before my training, as you mentioned, I had uh, studied medicine and philosophy. And for a while, I was actually interested in Lacanian theory. Mm, I, I was already familiar with the writings of Klein and Bion, 
But then when I went as a visiting scientist to the Tavi, to the Tavistock Clinic in 1992 and 93, hmm. the clinical work of the clients analysts made a, a great impression on me. I was enthusiastic about it. I attended John Steiner's Borderline Seminar there and later on translated his book, Psychic Retreats, into German. And at that time, I was also one of, obviously one of the first who did research in the Klein Archive and the Welcome Institute for the History of Medicine and in particularly in Klein's early child analysis and uh, of research work that was later on continued by my friend and colleague Claudia Frank and also by Elizabeth Spilius. And from that time onwards, in the 90s, we organized uh, conferences in Germany, in Italy, translated Kleinian papers and books, and I had supervision with Hannah Siegel, John Steiner, David Taylor, Sandy Byrne, and so I got into uh, in a close contact with my London colleagues. And for listeners, I'm curious about in, in Germany, is is the Kleining approach still what somewhat of a minority approach to psychoanalysis within the world of German psychoanalysis? As I, I think I would say it is here in the United States. And and could you say a little more for readers who aren't from, or listeners who are not familiar with, with Kleinian psychoanalysis, a bit more about how it takes up the word. You mean what Kleinian analysis is about or what is the corrective features of Kleinian analysis? Or Yeah. I You said something a little a few, few minutes before about it's a way you talk to the patient. Uh, but, but that's pretty general because every approach talks to the patient, but, but maybe a little more specifics. And also just how the world, where it is in Germany, Kleinian psychoanalysis, is it? Is it Yes, as I, as I mentioned, there was little uh, known about Klein. And you know that Klein left Germany already in 1925. That was mm. eight years before the Nazis took power in Germany. And she was in, invited by Ernst Jones and had this enormous success in the British society, despite her English, which was always for a long time she, she spoke like I do with a strong German accent. So, and in the archives, we actually found her autobiography and were allowed to publish part of them. And so, but the, the Germans, though many analysts were killed in the concentration camps, and those who who could escape either to London or to the United States, some of them to Argentina, and there was a long sort of vacuum for psychoanalysis in in Germany. And uh, in particular, Kleinian analysis, uh, it lasted quite long, up to the 80s. Uh, when it returned, there was a, a theoretical interest, uh, and there still is. Uh, um, I think today there's more exchange between London Kleinians and German analysts who who invite their British colleagues or see them for supervision in, in London, as I did. But nevertheless, the number of, of clinical clients, I would say, is relative small. And there are also, of course, many colleagues 
who would not agree and are still opposed to Kleinian analysis in Germany. Okay. All right. And rather than trying to, to, to talk about what is Kleinian psychoanalysis, let's look, let's see it in action by starting to get into some of the way you look at uh, some of these issues, like, like trauma, for instance, um, since that's the first title in your book. And I wanted to, to say a few things about trauma uh, to, to, in, to introduce this question, um, how you take up trauma, because I, I read a great article in the, the current issue of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis uh, by you on trauma. Uh, uh, I think it's a very the current issue. Um, and so you, you look at trauma from the perspective of psychoanalysis. And I think it, it's, um, it's important for us to, 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 to learn about that a little bit here because I recently read a book um, that, that looks at trauma from a neuroscientific perspective. It's a famous book by Bezel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps Score, uh, published in 2014. Uh, and it's, it's very much about how trauma impacts the nervous system, brain structures, um, creates kind of a hyper arousal and I don't know, the emotional brain, the subcortical parts of the brain. And, and um, so it really looks at trauma from, I don't know, a brain-based sort of perspective. But we know, and that's how a lot of clinicians in the United States sort of, uh, that, that's what trauma is to them. So when they hear um, psycho and analysts talking about trauma, it might not be quite the same thing. But why don't you um, talk a bit about about how you understand trauma from the psychoanalytic perspective? First, I think uh, these are two different approaches or perspectives on the same issue. And I'm sure Freud would have been very interested in the current neurobiological research on on the altered brain function in trauma so that's it's it's a little bit difficult for epistemological reasons to translate neurobiological language into a psychoanalytic approach but nevertheless it's interesting to to put them together and to to see the links between them from a psychoanalytical point of view i would say <clears throat> The classical view was that trauma is an experience which uh, overloads and disrupts the psychic organization. This may be due to the intensity of an experience or also to the immaturity of the child who cannot bind and, uh, and integrate the surplus of of excitation, of trauma, of excitation. That was what Freud already described in the in the eighteen nineties. He was initially preoccupied with the role of external sexual traumatization, but already in the late eighteen nineties, he had doubts about the reality of his patients' memories, and it was for that reason that he gave up the so-called seduction theory and focused more on the role of unconscious fantasy. But nevertheless, uh, he always was interested as well in the role of external traumatization. And throughout his work, we find this uh, interplay 
between internal and external factors leading to what he called helplessness and impotence at the core of traumatic experience. Or if you would like me to express it, it in a picture, one could say <clears throat> what looks from outside like the impact of a meteor strike on the surface of the earth, that is the overpowering effect of an overwhelming reality, is being experienced from inside like the explosion of an unconscious fantasy. And, um, or perhaps it would be even more adequate to imagine that the, the effects of traumatic experience is as a series of meteor strikes that lead to the explosion of a volcano resulting in a climate change that leads to hunger, cold, which in turn leads to a long-lasting civil war, an internal warfare, as Klein called it. And it is this intra-psychic civil war what leaves the individual with damaged internal figures. It's always an interplay between external and inner internal factors, but the damage is in the internal world. I liked very much Klein's uh, expression, the uh, the internal warfare, so it's a civil war inside the human mind. And so we move from trauma, guilt, and reparation. One of the um, maybe counterintuitive ideas of psychoanalysis, or especially your, your approach to it, is that people who are traumatized often feel guilty um, and so, and I guess they don't deal with that guilt well. But um, why would you say, how, so, and I guess this really opens up the Kleinian perspective. Why would you say because a child, for instance, has been terribly mistreated, that child feels guilty about that experience? Yeah, that is indeed one of the great paradoxes. Why should the child feel guilty for the damage that has been the abuse that had been inflicted on him. And I think, and it's not enough in therapy to tell the patient that he must not feel guilty because his internal uh, severe superego always punish, punishes him or her again. And I think if you ask where does the guilt come from, I think there are mainly perhaps three different sources. I think one, one source is the individual's fantasy to have created the bad objects in a magical way. The fantasy is that the individual has created the experience um, he has suffered and that he is responsible, he feels responsible for what has done to him. And therefore, one might say, with a traumatic experience, the, the bad internal objects become so real. The second source of guilt feelings, I think, is the enormous hatred and longing for revenge towards those uh, evil figures. And finally, I think we must keep in mind that there's 
almost almost always an un- unconscious identification with the traumatizing figures. In my book, for instance, I describe uh, a patient who had been handed as a child by her mother to a gang of pedophilic men for for seven years, from the age uh, from fi- from five to uh, to eleven years. And much later, she created a fantasy. Now, this is an example of one of these intrapsychic organizations. She created the fantasy of a tower where she was imprisoned and tortured by cruel men. But paradoxically, this fantasy was comforting and gave her relief, she told. Because the promise was in the fantasy that if she would tolerate all these sufferings from the man without complaint, then she would be safe and become part of them. And it is interesting that she called those men her best friends. So that is this strange way of becoming identified with the people who treated her so badly. So that they, I found it an amazing capacity of the human mind to transform the persecutory experience into something uh, totally different. They became their best friends. And during her analysis, it was a, was a conflict of loyalty between the man in the tower and the analysis. She was not allowed to tell me about her sufferings, her childhood experiences. And the man and nun, they would strictly punish her and so on. So I, uh, so I think that the guilt has different origins uh, for traumatized patients. Yeah. And I heard there a, a similar idea to, I guess it's Anna Freud's idea about the the victim's identification with the oppressor, but but you you spelled it out there, or um, or it's also similar to this idea, um, I guess from Fairburn that what what is it that the child wants to protect? Would rather live in a, a world where the child is the devil. Uh, how does that work? You want to pre- you don't want your parents to be bad because the child can't uh, tolerate having. Um, horrible parents because the child depends so much. So the child becomes bad in order to protect the goodness of the parent. Um, exactly. It's all about this con- confusion about who is who, what is good, what is bad. We often see that the bad figures are idealized. If it was a case in my patients with the man in the tower were the best friends. And there's all this uh, state of uh, disorientation and confusion similar to what Anna Freud called identification with the aggressor, perhaps with the difference that the, that, the, that the aggressor also contains parts of the self. And so we always project something of our own threatening destructive impulses into the aggressors and reintroject it in a certain way. And that is the... Uh, building blocks of the pathological organizations, which we, we also can call uh, traumatic defense organizations because they serve as an, what did my patient call it, her protective armor, she called it. So they didn't want to give, to give up. 
Okay, so if we stay with this picture of the, the, the patient who was terribly sexually abused as a child, she's in a tower with these evil men. She's kind of one with them. Where does guilt show up there? And, and what's your role that you were working out with her that she had so much trouble working out? Yes. Mm. She was terribly uh, suffering, of course. Uh, she always had a longing to die. Um, she believed that she was re- responsible for the sufferings of her mother, who was a very disturbed and delinquent woman. So she had the fantasy if she would not exist, her mother would be sane, and so on. And when I looked closer into the transference, then I discovered that she was uh, submitting towards me. So at one instance, she said that she experienced my interpretations as orders, what she should do. And she felt that she had to obey, to obey, that it was her task to help me to make her function again. So we had a very similar relationship in the transference with me. And for me, it was very difficult to adopt the role of such a cruel figure too. So that was, so I had either, I felt, so I wanted to rescue her in my counter-transference fantasy from the uh, dominant of the man in the tower. But in the meanwhile, I had become also one of these men to whom she had to submit and to obey, and she idealized me. And then we had to examine this part of the transference, including her suppressed hatred towards those figures. So I felt we have to, I had to bring it all into the transference situation, where a situation developed that she got into a conflict of loyalty and between the man in the tower and her analyst. And the man said if she would go on with the therapy, then they would withdraw their pre- uh, protection and she would be totally left alone and confused and despaired. And that was a very critical situation where she uh, lost the protection of this tower organization. Yeah, it really evokes something many of us have probably experienced with some of our patients who have been terribly treated um, in their lives, and they feel so bad about themselves. Um, some of them, they, they just feel like they're um, miserable human beings. Um, uh, but yeah, you can see how that's partly how they their familiar living, and that keeps them attached to their original objects um, who were so important to them, um, bad as they might have been, um, and how frightening it is to move away from those objects uh, and what that means um, for them. Uh, so as you went, you went through, it was interesting, three different ways that guilt arises um, in, in a traumatized individual. And one of them was you, you talked about, I think you called it the archaic superego. Uh, and I think that's an important um, idea that comes up in a lot of your work, this archaic superego. Can you say more about that? Uh, 
how that operates to create guilty individuals. Yes, I think the, uh, the discovery of the archaic uh, severe superego was one of the of Klein's findings, and there was a bit of controversy between her and Freud about because she thought that the origin of this of the early superego is. Uh, very early and already in the first year, not only as the heritage of the Oedipus complex as we are used to think about it. And um, um, she described the superego as a, the early superego as a very punitive and persecutory uh, psychic agencies. Uh, but she always, in her paper uh, on the development of psychic functioning from the late 50s, she described how this uh, internal figure slowly evolves and makes a development to a more helpful figure that no longer persecutes and punishes the ego, but enables the, the individual to make reparation. And she says the... Uh, the major superego is actually like the good mother who protects the child. And that I found very interesting how this, um, this uh, transition from the early persecutory punitive sadistic superego to the more helpful and supportive superego comes about. And that is closely linked with reparation. And uh, that idea of Klein helped me to get an idea of if we could work uh, with our patients. For instance, my patient also in the transference experienced me as a very powerful, probably sadistic figure who she idealized, of course, because I had all the power she had to obey. I gave interpretation as, as order. But slowly she discovered so that it there was a different sort of contact between us, and that was difficult for her to accept that I'm not so an idealized figure, but also not such a punitive figure. And then she she became a little bit freer, and what was clearly palpable in the analytic sessions. And so we had this this movement. But the internal figure became lost some of the cruelty, and um, that was, I think, closely linked with reparation. Uh, but there's a paradox because to develop the superego, we must be able to repair. And on the other hand, to be able to make reparation, uh, the superego struggle must become less severe. So there's an interdependency between reparation and the developing superego. Okay, so, so, so we have traumatized individuals. They feel all this guilt. Um, and then um, if they're able to begin to repair, uh, things soften up inside and there's a move towards a gentler, more compassionate, internal experience, which then um, obviously changes how people relate outward. Um, so, so, so I guess in, in, in this approach to psychoanalysis, one of the goals is to help people move towards 
this reparative experience um, within and without. And, and sometimes I think that that's a synonym for forgiveness. And I think it comes up sometimes in, in clinical psych and therapy work where a patient says, do I have to, do I have to forgive uh, um, the people who abused me? And I'm wondering, how would, how, how would you answer that? Do we have to forgive people who terribly mistreated us? I'm grateful that you asked uh, this question because um, the idea um, that the, the patient has to be able to forgive the persons who treated them so badly is a, a great misunderstanding of the concept of reparation. And now I think this is not the case. Reparation relates, as I said, to the damaged internal figures that are inside the patient's minds. And it leads to the development of a more benign superego and leading to an end of this internal civil war, as I said. And this process, I think, implies a lessening of distortions, including those of idealization of good objects, so that the bad object that actually did inflict the trauma can also be seen more realistically as bad. And this paradoxically enables good objects or good aspects of the object to be loved in a deeper way. So the, the, the consequence of reparation is that the distortions lessened and that our picture of our objects and, of course, also of ourselves gets more differentiated and that we co- can more wholeheartedly hate the bad aspect of the object, mm. which enable us to, to love deeper the good experiences mm. that also exist in life. Oh, I like that. I, I don't think I picked that up in your book, that, that this, this therapeutic process enables us to hate more intensely the bad object um that feels right to me uh i think in terms of my own experience of uh yeah having the chance to really feel hatred towards uh what's what's been hurtful and damaging to us um i like that because it's a non-moralizing aspect to um to the internal world that allows a place for hate uh, to Absolutely, because that has to do with the overcoming of splitting. And uh, um, as long as we split, so then we have only, there is no, no necessity to, to feel guilt, because as long as we hate only the bad object without any good aspect, there is no feeling of guilt. And as long as we idealize a good object, we must also not feel guilt. The problem comes up when we, when we detect and find out that our hatred is directed also against the good aspects. And then there comes this painful process of integration, which leads to a more realistic picture of ourselves and of the external world. And that means that we are allowed and can the real bad experiences as they were without feeling so guilty, so much guilty for it. Um, I'm having one thought here that uh, 
some people from outside the Kleinian world who are sort of maybe taking a critical approach might might characterize the whole approach of Kleinian psychoanalysis as kind of a almost a Christianizing of the internal world. If we think of like the Old Testament where we have a wrathful God who and there's what is the Italian law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then gradually we move the patient into this more New Testament world of love and forgiveness. Um, so I don't know, obviously I'm characterizing in a simplistic way, but it does seem like maybe there's a, a possibility here of, of a, a psychoanalysis that's kind of taking up um, particular values from Western European Christian world and, and turning it into uh, a psychoanalytic worldview. Yes, I would say it's not so much about Christianizing to, to transform the hell into the heaven, but it's more about democratizing the internal world. Uh, different to introduce more um, um, plurality, more that more different opinions and perspectives are allowed and can actually coexist. That is the effect, not Christianization. <laughs> okay, I, I, that's a very good answer um, because uh, most of us are for democracy in one way or another. Um, well, okay, let's talk about in our, let's see, remaining 10 or 12 minutes here, but um, one of the papers, I guess the paper you're going to present when you come to Los Angeles on November 6th is called The the, the Claustro-Agoraphobic Dilemma. And I wonder if you could explain what, what that is, that dilemma. Mm, I always found that the, the term Claustro agoraphobia was introduced, was coined by Henry Ray, who was an analyst who was born in the island of Mauritius and and later on worked for many decades at the Maudsley Hospital in London. And um, and he, I, I don't know whether his book, uh, Universals of Psychoanalysis and Schizoid and Borderline Patients is very well known in the United States, but there he collects his experiences his, of his psychoanalytic work with borderline and schizoid patients. And one phenomenon that he found was that many of those patients suffer from as well as from claustro as from agoraphobic anxieties. They are closely linked together. The, those are patients who cannot tolerate intimacy. They feel uh, in the moment they get too close, to, closer to a person, they feel imprisoned and encaged. And for that reason, they have to flee and to escape. But when they are alone and too, in a too far distance from their object, then they fear to, um, that they feel abandoned or they fear to fall into pieces. And for that reason, they must once again, uh, Get, try desperately try to get into the object. Ray described that these are persons who lack an inner skeleton and who push themselves into an uh, exoskeleton like into a shell. That was his idea. And uh, But inside this uh, uh, shell, they feel instantly encaged. And this permanent movement to and fro it's a, it's a terrible 
experience and which you can which, which is uh, reenacted of course in the analytic encounter so the difficulty to mm, to experience closeness or intimacy and contact so, yeah um, and you and, you give some really beautiful clinical examples that sort of show this at work in a very persuasive way about how this is yeah. a real thing this dilemma but actually it was a, a long theme in psychoanalysis be already in Freud who said uh, he said uh, you, you describe the spatial structure of the human mind and with this the psychic apparatus it was imagined as a, a being subdivided into different compartments and spaces and and he said that uh, uh, well the first experience is perhaps the experience of birth if you Leave if the baby leaves the mother's bodies and it feels the shock of all this. Uh, uh, it has to breathe. It has the coldness, the light must be terrible <laughs> in a way. But inside, it's also not an idealized place because it it hears the the the, the blood and the the the, bulb, the bubble movements and all that. So, the Freud was interested in that. Indeed, believes that the fear. Of being buried alive, for instance, is one uh, expression of agoraclaustrophobia. Um, there was uh, the first one who wrote about this was uh, Eduardo Weiss, the founder of the Italian psychoanalytic um, society, and he wrote in 1925 about agoraclaustrophobia, and followed Helene, uh, Helene Deutsch. Um, and in America, especially Bertram Lewin uh, was uh, was an, an analyst who developed this idea on the dream screen, and he was always very attached to Kleinian ideas because he was in Berlin. He was in contact with the Klein group, and at the moment we are preparing I'm a book uh, together with my. Uh, Colleague and friend from New York, Susan Finkelstein, uh, Susan Finkelstein. And the book is called um, "The Fear of Madness: The Agor Claustroagoraphobic Dilemma in Psychoanalysis," where we put together all these different contributions on claustroagoraphobia. Uh -huh. So, so with this idea um, as maybe a central sort of concept by which we look at the ther the analytic experience where we're tracking the distance is the of the patient from the analyst and the retreats and the approaches and um i can see how it seems like that may require a real high frequency treatment in order to um to to pr provoke these experiences sufficiently acutely where you can really see the, the coming closer, the pulling away. But what, what is your experience with maybe people coming once or twice a week? Um, can you, does this approach still work? Uh, just, just take a lot longer? Yes, I, I think claustroagoraphobic uh, mm, anxieties are very present from early on, from the, from the first intake interview, perhaps. And we are seeing those patients in our day hospital for borderline patients where we offer psychoanalytic individual and group treatment and for a limited period of time for three or four months. Um, but those patients have 
15 hours therapy per week, quite a lot, group and individual therapy. And when we get, of course, into contact with this claustro-agoraphobic anxieties, and later they can go on without patient treatment. I would say that uh, high frequency is much better to work these experiences through. And um, although it's sometimes difficult for those patients to to tolerate four times a week, and sometimes even to stay in the consulting room for 50 minutes. So I will describe a patient who who within a single session would run out and come back to the consulting room several times, sometimes, as a very clear, inside the consulting room, he felt to be my person, and outside, he felt totally despaired and alone and phoned me, can I come back? So, so of course, it's much better if we have the opportunity to see the patient three, four times a week, and uh, in Germany, the National Health Insurance allows for every person to have at least 300 sessions cost-free. So that is, they must not pay for it. So, which is also a problem that they don't have to pay at all for it. But Yeah, no, but that's uh, amazing that there's still places out there where, where governments pay for this kind of intensive work. Ah, psychoanalytic work, it's wonderful. Because we think it's cheaper for the society. <laughs> ah, uh-huh. In the long run, you mean? Yeah. Of course, yeah. 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 Well, okay, so so, uh, in, I think it, you're known for, for working with borderline patients, traumatized patients, um, where maybe it's more typical to see these extreme... Um, uh, behaviors and reactions and unconscious fantasies. What about uh, healthy, <laughs> healthy, uh, neurotic people who haven't had a particular amount of trauma in their backgrounds? Uh, should they go to Lacanian psychoanalysis? <laughs> I'm joking here, but is is that something people maybe sometimes can 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 criticize you for and say, well, this is for very people who are very disturbed, this, this approach to psychoanalysis. No, I think it's, it is um, easier, of course, to work with normal neurotic patients as we all are, hopefully, <laughs> because um, they have a, a concept of space in their mind and some ability of symbolization, of course, because uh, one pro- of of the major problems that Ray described in the claustro-agoraphobic patients is that they communicate on a very concrete level. Their words are facts, or they communicate facts or actions, and uh, they have to develop. Uh, the analyst has a task to um, to convert or to um, to transform concrete communications into symbolic communication. That is much easier in the neurotic patients. But although the neurotic patients has areas in his or her mind who work on a very who operate on a very concrete level and although this has to be unpacked and worked through. But of course it's easier. But I think it should not go to an 
Lacanian analysis, except we have 50 minutes for each session and at least three or four sessions a week. So because the change of the duration of the session must be extremely confusing for psychotic or borderline patients. It colludes with their internal disorientation. Um, yeah, so we didn't get into too much that concrete versus symbolic thinking, but um, I was thinking that may um, be implicated in the patients who think, when I asked earlier about this question, do you have to forgive your abusers? That would be a concrete way of thinking. You have to concretely forgive or make reparation. Um, and you beautifully described a more symbolic way of understanding that process. Um, I will say to people that um, people who are interested in learning more about the Kleinian approach, that this book of um, Dr. Weiss's is, is really a beautiful way into it because you don't use a lot of jargon in there. I, I found you used a lot of very um, normal everyday words and ways of, of explaining things. Um, and so I've read a lot of Kleinian literature, especially some of the work from the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, which sometimes can begin to feel a little, uh, I don't know, dated or whereas your writing is very up to the moment, I felt, um, and very helpful way of, uh, of understanding this approach. Um, so let's see, any, to wrap up, uh, anything you're working on now, any other seminars coming up that people might want to join in and learn, learn more from you? Yeah, after this book, I, I published, but that was in German with my colleague and friend, Easterhorn, a book on timeless states of mind, because timelessness uh, is another big problem for traumatized patients. They all live in a timeless world in a way, and the traumatized patient freezes time. And for that reason, he can neither truly remember nor truly forget. So I described, because uh, every new experience is the recurrence of the same. And that I call, if he remembers the experiences in a concrete way present, and uh, that I called um, traumatic remembering. And he can also not forget. It's one important point that with the acknowledgement of the trend of transience and the passage of time, he also may, must acquire a capacity to forget. And the traumatized patient cannot forget because he creates a black hole or a vacuum in his mind, which I called ecliptic forgetting. So that is a very important point to, to bring the patient in contact with the experience of time. And that was in this book, Timeless State of Mind. And we edited one on the repetition and the repetition compulsion, but both are in German. Hopefully one day perhaps being translated into English and the forthcoming one is the one on claustro agoraphobia together with Susan Finkelstein from New York. Well, thank you very much for taking um, an hour with us today, Dr. Weiss. Thank you for this talk. So you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Heinz Weiss about his book, Trauma, Guilt and Reparation, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. Please contact me, Philip J. Lance, at gmail.com 
if you would like to learn more about um, the Zoom seminar that Dr. Weiss is going to be doing uh, on Saturday, November 6th, um, or to let me know your thoughts um, and questions about the show. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>